Blog Talk Radio. Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. I'm Lawrence Knorr, and I have with me Jess Stephen Hughes joining us from the Pacific Coast. Jess is the author of the Britannia Romanus series of novels, Four and All, and a fifth one on the way. Those books include The Sign of the Eagle, Wolf of Britannia One, Wolf of Britannia Two, The Broken Lance, and the soon to be released Peacekeeper. So we'd like to welcome Jess Stephen Hughes to the BookSpeak Network, Sunbury Press Book Show. Jess, how you doing? Doing great. Thank you for having me on, Lawrence. Well, it's great to finally hook up with you here and uh, to have you on the show. And right off the bat, I have to ask you, knowing your background as a retired police detective, how does a retired police detective end up writing Roman historical fiction? Well, it goes back to the fact I've always been interested in Mediterranean history, and I've traveled there several times. When I was a police detective sergeant, my first inspiration was to teach classical history at the California State University level. The thing of it is to teach classical history, I needed six foreign languages. I needed Greek, Latin, Italian, French, and German. I only had Greek, Latin, and Spanish, and I figured, well... I make far more as a police detective sergeant than I ever will make as a, as a full prof, uh, college professor at the state university level. So I'll just stick to that and start uh, looking into the possibility of writing historical fiction in, in the future and use my information, my background, because I've walked the lands I've written about, plus all my research, and but I'd have to join a uh, find a decent writers group to, to to work with, for starters. Well, I can tell you, having uh, delved into your books, I'm also a big fan of Roman history and and have enjoyed many of the movies that have come out over the years set in those times and those places. And uh, one thing that really I find very interesting about your work, and I think it's very hard to do as a writer, is to have that historical accuracy. At least, you know, I'm a layman. I'm no Ph.D. in ancient mm-hmm. cultures, but, you know, I am a, I am a fan, but I do appreciate, uh, you know, how you describe the rooms, the furniture, the clothing, the food, the scents, you know, what people are smelling and hearing and seeing. And I, I guess, you know, how, how did that come about? Is that, is that through your studies? Is that through just, uh, well, well, it's, it's a combination of, well, for research, but also, I belong to a creative writing group up here called the Spokane Novels Group. They were 50 years, and that's where I learned to write. You know, using the you know they taught me using the five senses. My college uh, creative writing classes were totally worthless. They were strictly literary fiction. They were clueless about genre fiction. Well, when I joined this group, when I moved up here to Washington from California, these are almost all professional writers. Most of them are established authors, and I learned from them how to write and how to use the senses. And plus, and I had I had done the research and I knew how to show that, but I mean tell about to, to show it, to show the feeling, to show the senses, the whole that sort of thing. It it was through this particular group I really learned to to delve into the the senses and using it and creating the accuracy because I wanted to not just show it. I didn't want to write a history. I wanted to both convey what it was in that period, but also entertain, convey information, and tell a story at the same time. Yeah. So, but knowing to to touch on the five senses is one thing, but to do it accurately for like, you know, 50 AD or whatever time frame we're talking about, you know, to go back that far to those settings and to, to really have a sense of what it was like, it's fascinating. And you, know, you just see yeah. the, 
to paint a very vivid picture. So I'm, I'm just curious, you know, yeah, the, I, the real knowledge of the, the Roman setting, um, you know, how you develop that. Well, it was some great deal of research. I mean, there, I have a, a personal library over a thousand books, uh, classical, medieval, and Mideastern history. And I've got books on everyday life with the people. I have a couple dozen just on the everyday life of the Romans alone. Which go in the, each one of them goes into different details about the, but the smells and about uh, what they ate and how they lived, and they bring that all into play. And so I get a fairly good idea about uh, the senses and and using it what they knew at that time, plus you know just how they lived and the superstitions and you know and what they ate and drank and uh, clothing the whole thing. And so one thing led me to something else. One bibliography led me to something, another bibliography. I was able to look up things. So, right. And then. Right, yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, what were you saying? I was going to say, and, going to say the, and the group also, they made suggestions too as well. I learned from a lot of the ladies in the group about cooking and that sort of thing and they knew about things from that period they were able to suggest too. You do it very, very well. I think you also capture, um, at least from my, my studies, you know, the, the social order, you have the class, uh-huh. the different orders, and you have the, the roles of male and female, the slaves, and then also the religion that that's intertwined with it. And it's all just oh, a very yeah. rich tapestry of their, of life then. Oh, well, they had definite social levels and within that. And uh, so I try to really convey that to show how sharp it was and also show about the, the ancient gods wherever I could, too, because the ancient gods, whether Roman or Greek or the Celts, or whatever, they're all play were very influential in the lives of most of these people. And everything they they did almost was based on the, the religious practices, even though they weren't devoted and maybe in a certain way, like say Christians or Jews today, uh, they worshipped their gods in their own way and uh, kept in contact with them. You might say. And would you say they're more transactional or more superstitious? Um, oh, they were v- very superstitious, very superstitious. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of and the, the soldiers in the. I say the soldiers in the Roman army were very superstitious. They always they wouldn't go into battle if the if the, the omens were bad, or if, when the right. the high priest uh, opened up the, the bowels of the, the the entrails of a goat or whatever, if they had flukes, what they call them, if they were, that was you didn't you didn't go to battle that day. That's a little bit uh, <laughs> not in alignment with the scientific method, but uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> Yeah, that's I don't know what goat or shove or, you know, what entrails would actually tell you, but maybe that the animal yeah. was sick <laughs> or healthy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, like when Julius Caesar, when he when he uh, uh, raided England, which was they were hit and run missions, uh, his soldiers, their soldiers who had heard all kinds of horrible stories about what monsters the, the British Celts were and all kinds of all kinds of uh, dragons were there, and so they were about scared to death when they first landed. They were expecting to see all kinds of horrible creatures, and that the the Celts would be ten foot tall and that sort of stuff. And they found they weren't. But uh, the soldiers, they were very superstitious. So tell me about your travels related to your research. Where, where have you gone? I've been all over. Uh, I've been all over the Mediterranean. I've been over there three times. I mean, I basically have locked the lands where I've written about, and where I haven't, I've done a, a great deal of research. I mean, I've been all over southern Europe. I've been to parts of North Africa. I've been to Turkey. Uh, I've been to England, of course, and both southern and northern France, and all over Italy, all over Greece. Uh, been on the, the, the islands like Sicily, and I've been to Malta and the Balearic Islands, and that this wow. else, I've been I've been to all of those places. I've been to Tunisia where I saw the ruins of Carthage, and of course I've been to Greece, which I haven't used in my stories. But I've been to all the great places like the Acropolis and the, the Delphi, the Delphi uh, monuments, and uh, of course in in Italy I've been all over to like the Colosseum and, and Rome, and been north up there in Milan, and uh, so 
I've seen many of the great places that I write about. And like I said, that's why I use Milan in my story, my first story, and I go back going to Genoa. And that particular one, I used the 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 storm. I was in that storm, which I use in that story. So I, okay. I felt it and things like that. I, I think it's neat when traveling in those areas how history is just layered uh, in oh. many of those towns. You know, oh, yeah. The, the Neolithic uh, traces, like... Um, the bull worshiping culture and oh yeah you, know, you get some you get some barrows that kind of thing and then you run into the, mm-hmm. the roman and and mm-hmm. then you know from there forward but oh yeah uh, i know two places now I've, I've also been to italy and and other places in europe and greece as well but two places that were roman oriented and i want to see if you'd ever been there one was bath england and if you no, ever I, had a chance to I see haven't the made, bath i didn't there, make it to bath i I haven't made it to Bath, unfortunately. I've heard so much about it. Several of my friends have been there. I've seen lots, lots and lots of pictures, but I haven't. Aquasule, I haven't been there, unfortunately. Uh, okay. I haven't used, I haven't used my stories, so that's another reason too. <laughs> but, uh, the other, the other spot that that I thought was fascinating, um, in, you know, in the in the movie Gladiator, he's a Spaniard, and I've lived right. in Spain for a little while, back mm-hmm. in the nineties, and. Segovia, Spain has this amazing aqueduct. I didn't know if you'd ever oh, been yeah. there to see that. It's, I I haven't been seen it, but I have a good friend of mine was just over there, and he sent me back some of those fantastic pictures of that aqueduct there. It, it is a magnificent I would say, place, that's for sure. If you ever have, if if you're ever planning another trip, that's probably one to uh, to add, just because. Uh, well, I see. It's huge. I love. Yeah, see, I want to go back to Spain. I've been to southern Spain. And uh, I, that's one of the places I do want to go because the Spaniards have done some of the greatest research in the last 30 years, archaeological, about the about Roman Spain that have come to light. And I've tried to use some of that a little bit. That's why I use my character from Spain, Marcella, because the Spaniards were the most Romanized of the provincials in the first century, and they were the best cavalry. And I've been some great ranches there in the southern coast, Costa del Sol I've been up to, and uh, so yeah, that just didn't make it unfortunately to Sergovia. <laughs> well, that's okay. Uh, I mm-hmm. was just wondering, uh, you know, with all your travels, if you had stopped at those places. But um, yeah, what about ancient Rome? What most impressed you about Rome when you were visiting there? Uh, was anything that really? St- I mean, everybody sees the Colosseum, but see him. Uh, Actually, ironically, it was going to the Vatican Museum. I didn't realize how great that museum is, and I saw a lot of the the relics they had from the time of Constantine, which impressed me. And uh, the whole this the, the what I saw in the museum about the Constantine myth basically impressed me a lot. But I still uh, I was impressed by the well actually I, I like going to the arches both the Arch of, of Constantine and the Arch of Titus, the old forum. I was still, even though the ruins are great, I was still impressed uh, by the whole area. And then by the the area, the, the Circus Maximus and that sort of thing. Uh, I still really was, I really, really love that, you might say. And uh, so uh, that part of Rome, I, I really did like at, at the time. Uh, also, I've been down some temples in uh, Greek temples down in Sicily, which I really got into. Also, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and uh, of course, I of course I went to Pompeii. I was over in Naples and went to Pompeii, and I love Pompeii. And much of the descriptions of my rooms, that sort of thing, are based on the ruins of Pompeii. What we know about Rome, we we get really from Pompeii because it's so well preserved, right. and so. I use much of that. Actually, the descriptions are based on what I found. What now I found in Pompeii, but I have many, many books on Pompeii which I also use for research as well. Even down to the graffiti I use, that's what was all from Pompeii. Mm-hmm. Pompeii is a is an amazing site. Uh, I've been there twice, and uh, just it's vast. You I mean you just can't see it all. <laughs> it's, well, uh, you can't. Not one day. Not really. If you're going yeah. to do it right. 
I was right. there in the middle of July and it was so hot and humid. It was just right. I was just glad I was younger at the time. <laughs> and a lot of the actual artifacts are in the uh, museum in Naples. Yeah, uh, which unfortunately I didn't even get to. Yeah. Um, had you ever been in the Pantheon? Oh yeah. In Rome. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've been in the Pantheon. Yeah, it was very impressive. I, it, you would know that it was built so so long ago. Of course, they've made it converted to a church, and that's sort of the idea that the whole thing is remain intact as much as well as it has been as in itself. Almost a mir- mir- miraculous, considering how many times Rome was sacked, not only during the end of the empire, but during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, even. And how many earthquakes they've had. Oh, God, yeah. You, you would think that that concrete dome would, at some point, have crumbled, or at least had, yeah, had severe yeah. damage to it. Well, that shows you how well made uh, the Roman engineers are some of the greatest in, well, they were the greatest in the ancient world, and uh, they're the ones that developed concrete, as we know it today, out of yes. originally volcanic sand and uh, made the dome. And so, it, I, mean, the, I mean, the concrete lasts, a good, they could use it underwater and still be, have it existing today. And Yeah, I think the the Pantheon for me was just like a ghost from the past. Uh, you walk into oh, that square, yeah. into that mm-hmm. uh, you know that that little square, and right there is this ancient building, and it just looks like it's out of time. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, very very cool. As a big fan of Roman history, it's uh, yeah. The only one they compared I compared that with, which I fascinated. I was in Istanbul. And I went to the museum, the Cathedral of St. Sophia, which was built by Justinian in the 6th century. They, of course, they made the mosque and back to the museum. And that was, to me, was the only comparable to me to the Pantheon as far as the age and preservation. And I got the same chilly feeling in my, say, just, I get this, my, uh, my, went up, just like my cold went up my back in both places I went into. Yeah. So <laughs> like I've exactly been there. I mean, when I uh, when I bit, when both places I went in, it's like I I you know, I couldn't breathe for just a split second. It's like I've been here. It's almost it was weird. I don't believe in incarnation, but I just had that weird feeling like I know this place. It was just really strange. I had a similar experience in the Roman Forum, just uh, sitting on one of the paths and with the sound oh. of the gravel crunching and the birds mm-hmm. and the trees, and it was late spring when I was there and. Oh, like I just, yeah. just imagine that all of a sudden, you know, there's I'm back in time, just just watching uh, the people walking by, and you know, the oh, center yeah. of government, the center of the center. of the Western yeah, world, business, government. Yeah. Probably see one of the senators over getting a speech there on the rostra, the people gathering around, maybe even a public trial going on. Not to mention all the the business that stands there, you're doing business on a daily basis. Now, your books are set uh, quite a bit in Roman Britain. Right. So why uh, why do you like Britain so much, or why do you connect to Britain with your novels? Well, it started, well, I've always been fascinated by the invasion of Roman Britain. I got several books on it, and uh, I'd read a lot about it on just ancient Britain itself, and I connected with... Uh, the late Dr. Graham Webster, many years ago, he was one of the foremost authorities of Roman Britain. And I wanted to do a story, uh, write, write about Craticus because there was hardly anything ever written in Craticus. And to me, Craticus was a hero that never got the attention as far as I was concerned he should. I mean, he waged first waged guerrilla warfare, and he really held it, pinned the Romans down for eight years before he was captured. And he doesn't get a lot, he doesn't have a lot of notoriety, which quite frankly, I think he deserved. I just wanted to, I, my, to do something. Plus, my people are are, are Welshmen, primarily. Okay. We consider ourselves okay. the, rich, the original British Celts, and that's where it all started from. And uh, but uh, I want to do Craticus, but ironically, I actually started writing about it. But I set it aside because I am not good enough a writer. And I started writing about Maha because the only British Celt woman that we know of really famous is Boudica and also Cartamandra who betrayed Craticus. I said. 
We knew that he had a seven-year-old daughter that went to Rome with him. We didn't hear much about her. So I decided I wanted to write a story about a strong female Celtic woman uh, and uh, went from there. So did the Romans conquer Wales? I know they only went so far as oh, the wall. In yeah, the well, Wales never really oh, got yeah, Scotland, they went, but did they get Wales? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's That was the land of the Silurians or the Vichys. Uh, they were among the last to be conquered because they were tough mothers. They, the the Brecon Beacon, the mountains there was almost like a big barrier. But oh yeah, the Romans said they were among the last to be conquered uh, in southern Britain. They were considered the little dark men, but I don't know how true that is. Uh, but yeah, they're among. Uh, they were they waged guerrilla warfare for years, even after the Romans had conquered much of the rest of Britain. So they I'm were sure brought the under. Hughes, the House of Hughes was the last to fall. <laughs> yeah, who knows? But they were tough, and they waged gold, and they were never totally, say, Romanized or civilized, quote unquote, like the, the southwestern part of Britain or the south or the, the eastern part of Britain was. They they were still pretty wild even up uh, until when the Romans withdrew, and then when the Romans withdrew, the Saxons came in and they drove the British Celts. Many were driven into Wales. And so the Welshman, many consider himself the British Celts. Of course, they, a lot of the British Celts went to Cornwall. They went across to Brittany, France, and some went to Ireland, and some went up to Scotland. But a lot of them went into Wales. So if you could give us uh, an overview of your novels, maybe take us through the series at a high level for those that aren't familiar with them. Okay. Um my first novel was actually The Sign of the Eagle, which is a story about Maha, the daughter of Caraticus. After Caraticus was pardoned, quote-unquote, by the Emperor Claudius, his family, they basically went out of history, but we believe they actually settled down, lived honorably in Italy, and she would grow up to marry a Roman army officer. In my book, she's already been married to her husband Titus for 10 years. He's like a hero of the great civil war of 69 AD, but now he's wrongfully accused of treason, and she has to almost single-handedly prove his innocence and takes her in a great chase and suspense from Milan to the coast of Italy and down to Rome. And she has to get help uh, from a senator. But more, she has to help get help from uh, several other strong female characters. There's a vestal virgin that helps her. There's a shopkeeper who's dying of TB, which was all too common days, that helps her. Then there's a, an African slave woman. That helps her, who she frees in the end. It's not even her slave. She buys her and frees her. And, you know, she basically, in a way, saves the, the life of the Emperor Vespasian, as the story goes. And so it goes, it's a go, you see how, go, you see the abject poverty of Rome to the great opulence of the rich. And I show the poverty, I show the class system very distinctly, whether you're a slave or commoner or, or senator or whatever. Uh, but it's uh, basically like a suspense story. Now, uh, The Wolf of Britannia, Part 1, that is about a young Craticus who's trying to unite the the southern British tri- tribes before the coming of Rome. They know Rome was coming. Uh, Rome already, the Romans had conquered Gaul. They had killed over a million Gauls in the process. They destroyed the Druids, or the Druids fled to Britain. The things, Craticus had us circumvent his father, his, his Father is a chief named Canubalinus, but he was also known as Cymbeline, and he was immortalized in the Shakespearean play called Cymbeline. He had to circumvent him, go to his uncle to give him a, help him out, but he didn't. The uncle was the brother of, a, of his father of an adjacent tribe. Well, the people, the Celts, they were all related, one way or another. They're all cousins. There were 30 known tribes, and so, but they're always fighting on themselves, and the Romans use that, divide and conquer. And in the process, though, he had to drive an older brother out of Britain who's an incompetent drunk who the, the Romans wanted to be a, a king, but the Romans had realized basically that the, the Celts voted for their kings through the tribal council. The women could uh, rule as easily as men. They had equal rights. They fought in battle with their men. So he drove his brother out ultimately. And But you see a lot, lot more in the story. You see how the Celts live in, in my book. I show the customs, show how they had to fight what, are, what are, we call the Scots today, the Caledonians that came down right from the north. And but he drove his brother out, and the next book opens, volume uh, part two, is the actual invasion itself. That's considered the best document of my books, and uh, it shows from day one the invasion itself. Well, basically, Caraticus 
realized he could not take the Romans head on. He was badly defeated, so he had to wage guerrilla warfare, which he did for eight years. Again, there's a lot, lot more to the story than that. You see the background of the Romans, the background of the Brits. We see Maha actually growing up, too, amidst all this turmoil. And he was betrayed after the great battle, a real battle, uh, and by his cousin, Cardamandua, who is uh, a queen that ruled the north. One of his distant cousins, he had basically scorned in marriage through no fault of his own, but she was a greedy, she was greedy for Roman gold anyway and betrayed him. And he and his wife and his daughter was seven at the time, Maha. They went to Roman chains. He went before the Emperor Claudius. He gave a very famous speech called the Speech of the Noble Savage. That's a speech I had to memorize from Tacitus, which impressed the Emperor so much he quote unquote pardoned him. You know, pardoned him for defending his own lands. But anyway, they would live honorably in Italy. I'm not going to say the end of the story, but we, Maha grows up and marries a Roman army officer. And the next book was The Sign of the Eagle, which was my first book. And that story already said what it is. The Sign of the Eagle came first, but uh, but the, the the Wolf of Britannia Part 1 and 2 are basically our prequels to The Sign of the gotcha. Eagle. Because in The Sign of the Eagle, she, says she flashes back a memory about her father and all that sort of thing. And now my current book, the latest one that came out just last year, The Broken Lance, is from a different perspective. It's the same period. It's through the eyes of a Spanish cavalryman, sergeant in the Roman army who fought in Britain. He goes there. What happens was he's with a squadron of ten horses there in the ship. They cross the, 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 the English Channel, called the British Channel in those days, in the middle of a storm, of all things, and he can't understand unless the bureaucrat didn't know anything about the sea or anything. They sit in the middle of the, the winter anyway. They get in the shipwreck on the shores of Britain. He and the survivors, they manage to make their base of operations, and it turns out the commander of the base is his family's arch enemy. He'll do everything to make life miserable for it. And I'm not going to give away the story, but he will go on to make a name for himself, becomes a hero. At a real battle, Battle of Maiden Castle, I friend of mine uh, who did a major paper on the Battle of Maiden Castle, the latest information I incorporated in that story about the weaponry, which they discovered. Anyway, he would, Marcellus was his name, would become a hero, basically. He impressed uh, both General Vespasian and, and Sabinus, who was the brother of Vespasian, and Sabinus promoted him to Centurion and takes him to Rome with him as a retainer. Well, he gets involved in all kinds of intrigue in Rome. Mystery. He uncovers a conspiracy. I'm not going to say exactly what it happens, but he becomes basically a hero by the end of the story. You just had to read it to find out. And now the next, my next novel is coming out is called The Peacekeeper, which is the second half of that story. And that will deal, we see, about the burning of Rome and we see about the persecution of Christians. I don't go into doctrine, but we, I just showed this is what happened. This is what Nero did and things mm-hmm. like that. And we see that Mar- Marcellus... He marries a woman that I won't, that he would say was in the first story about him, and who becomes a Christian, and see what happens to her too. So, now I know out I on the about, horizon you've talked. Yeah, you've talked about a, part, another book, a sixth book. Well, I'm but working. I don't know if we should talk I'm about in, that. <laughs> well, that's that's going to it's going to take me two years. I'm having to do a lot of research. I've already made two wrong left turns in the writing. I had to go back again to the beginning. That that book will deal with Maha from the sign of the eagle because in that book, at the end, her husband is going to be dispatched to Britain to look in some, some murders dealing with some some uh, bureau, Roman bureaucrats. The emperor doesn't trust uh, what happened with the investigation that went on and. So this story deals with Maha manages to go with her husband to Britain, and it kind of goes from there. It could say all hell breaks loose. I'll just say the opening, the opening sentence in the book. They're on the Thames River. Just I see a body floating down the river, and it kind of goes mm-hmm. from there. And it gets into your police detective background too. Well, a little bit, yeah. Uh, I showed that I think a little bit in. In, originally in the San Eagle, I showed about the watch, which was a combination of police and firefighter in Rome, and also the city guard, too. And so I did use some of that, too, because there are some things that are the same, but a lot that wasn't. <laughs> they used a lot of torture in those days. So, but uh, yeah, there'll, there'll probably be some of that in there. 
So I know that uh, you get out and about. Tell us a little bit about your your recent book tours and and where you're going to plan to be in the near future. Okay, well, I've been very fortunate. I people don't like Barnes Noble are able to get into it. I I've made a lot of contacts, and the Barnes and Noble stores locally took a chance on me because unfortunately, a lot of authors sit at bookstores like rocks. They don't do anything and they can't understand why they don't sell any books. Whereas I'm like the the barn the, the old Walmart greeter doesn't guarantee anything but I talk to everybody and as a result I've sold quite a few books wherever I go. I've done mostly stores in the Northwest now. The people you know, I hear words that we should try the indies that they're more supportive of local authors. Well Strangely enough, indies have not worked for me. I live, I tried going over to Seattle because I'm here in Washington State, and uh, they weren't interested. Here in Spokane, there was one major indie, I'm not going to say who, but it's one of the biggest in the northwest between, in the northern tier between Seattle and Minneapolis, St. Paul. They would allow me only two hours at a time. Well, when I do a book signing, I like to do a minimum of four hours to be effective. They wouldn't give me that, and uh, they were not that supportive. So the Barnes & Nobles, I fortunately was able to – there were several that were willing to take me on, and uh, I I have a regular core of stores in Spokane, on the west side, we call it, over in the Seattle area. I just went to – did a successful book signing in Bozeman, Montana. Well, people think it's the boondocks, but Bozeman, Montana is a major university town, and uh, they, those people read there. They read their books. And I, it was very successful. In fact, when I was there, they had a great exhibition of Julius Caesar, military genius, and mining machines going up at the Museum of the Rockies right across the street from Montana State. Took a lot of pictures, and I've done a lot of – put those on Facebook as well. They had a great expedition. It just tied in, and people learned that, that I was in town. And as a result, several people who had gone to the expedition, exhibition came over uh, to the store and bought my books as well because it tied in perfectly. And now I – Go ahead. No, I'm just going to let you finish your story. Oh, oh well, I was going to say uh, I'm a regular here at the Spokane. We have two Barnes & Nobles here in Spokane, Spokane Valley and Spokane North Town. I'm considered the unofficial resident writer at both stores because I usually do a lot of my writing at the Starbucks there. But I also like I said I stores on the west side. I Also, there's a couple – there's a grocery store here I do all the time as well, the Yolks, because it's Yolks Fresh Market. They're part of a chain in the, in the northwest, and they always want me to come in. So that's closest to India again. And actually, it's a grocery store which I do books on consignment. But they ask me, "Where are you coming back next?" And then the old inner, the old Hastings, <laughs> excuse me, they have a, a, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. That's just across the state line. It's a major resort here. I have an Entertain Mart. That is the old Hastings stores. And I used to do real good at Hastings. Well, they took over this one, and it's the only one in the Northwest to have. And so I, I'm always over there on a regular basis selling as well. Now. I'm going down – I always go down to California to San Jose three, four times a year to visit my son and his family. And uh, Barnes & Noble store down there in the call the Blossom Hill area of Silicon Valley. They always want me there because I'm originally from the Bay Area. And it's considered the very best bookstore in all of Silicon Valley. And it is a beautiful store. And I always do very, very well there. So that that's a regular for me as well. So I make a kind of a, a tour of all these places. And I'm going over to another store in the Seattle area in, in the end of June, also Barnes & Noble as well. So I usually make this uh, trip to – I also – I forgot. I also also go down to the wine country down in south uh, Washington State to uh, to Kennewick to Barnes & Noble down there. I'm a regular down there. So I have regulars. They always want me to come back because I do so well. In fact – for the last year now, people are coming up, are coming up to me every place I sign. When, you, when is your next book coming out? I really like this. I want to get another one. And I've heard from the, the management. They said I get people in all the time. When they know when's he coming back? When's his next book coming out? So I, I must be doing something right. <laughs> no, it sounds like you are. One of the, one of the trends that you're sort of uh, 
bucking is the success with the larger chains like a Barnes and Noble. Yeah. Our experience has has been uh, that the independents are more supportive and that uh, independent authors get a better chance there. And it seems like on yeah. the East Coast, the Barnes and Nobles are not as friendly for author signings, but it's great to hear that, that it's working out for you. And I know at the press, we, we appreciate that. And we're, we're always trying to figure out what our relationship with Barnes and Noble is. is and, and yeah. Well, you know, it's so diverse. Well, see, I, I don't, I haven't been able to get into all of them. There are several I haven't get into. It's just, I get into ones in an area enough, you might say that uh, I don't have to get in all the others. I, I able to get specific yeah. areas of the Northwest and, and so, and plus, these two stores in the valley, they're willing to manifest for free my books to the other stores if they want to order them. They'll send them to them for free, and they can ship them back for free. They'll they'll take them back. They've been real good about. They're real good about uh, helping that respect too, because they they always they recommend me. So anyway, yeah, I'm just I guess I'm lucky in that respect. What do you think it is about the the independent stores not being as Cooperative. Is it the I, content? You know, I can't. You think? I, I I can't honestly say uh, what what the deal is. They claim over in Seattle. I'm not local enough for them, and they don't even want to deal with me. Even though I'm 300 miles away, yet around the rest of the Northwest, I'm considered local. Even if I go to Montana, uh, <laughs> the one store I don't want to mention the name, the big one. It's just that they just don't want to give me the time. To, because they have all kinds of books there too, and they get all kinds of famous authors, they just did not right. well, wouldn't allow me the the time which I need. Now we have some other independents here, but they're so tiny, so small that they wanted to charge me a twenty dollar administrative fee just to put two books on the shelf, and they were too small oh. to have a meet and greet. Huh. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. You don't want to be paying to set up when you're no. doing them a favor, but. Well, exactly. I mean, did we have see. I, see, we're kind of like a big city in the middle of nowhere here in Spokane. We're 300 miles east of Seattle, and there's no bigger city between us and Minneapolis-St. Paul. Everything else is a much, much smaller scale. The biggest, next biggest city between us and Minneapolis-St. Paul is Billings, Montana, in central Montana. It's an eight-hour drive. They're 100,000 population. We're we're a metropolitan population of almost 500,000. But we we're we're in the middle of farm country, mountains, logging, the whole thing. I mean, we're big, almost big sky ourselves. We still have cowboys here. So um, I'm real interested in the grocery store opportunity. You know, I tell a lot of our authors that sometimes the best place to sell a book is is not a bookstore. It's a, it's a store that doesn't focus on books because then your book is you know, maybe the only one there, or, you know, there just aren't that many books there to compete against and you get a lot, yeah. lot more attention. Right. Well, you what find, the deal is here. I, yeah, that's very, very true. Uh, what the deal is, uh, Yokes here is called Yokes Fresh Market. We have 23 stores here in the inland Northwest and I've gone to a couple of them and one of them is just across the bridge. They're less than five minutes from where I live here. Just down, I'm in the country, but surprisingly, I'm real close to the freeway. Well, I'm on, on the other side of the freeway. It's a place called Liberty Lake. Remind me of the city where I lived in California one time. But anyway, uh, Dan Seco, the manager, has been real super. He, when they store opened up grand opening two years ago, I found out he had a guy come in and do a book signing. And as soon as I found out about that, I went and introduced myself. And he took uh, to uh, right away. The guy is an Italian American. He had just visited Rome, and I told him about my books. Says, "Oh, I want you in my store." And ever since then, I go back every two or three months and call Fresh Friday, and that's the busiest day. They have all these great specials. I sit there right in front of my books, and uh, I, I've done fairly well. It's up and down. I've, you know, it's, I think the fewest I've sold is five or six. They say I don't care. I want you back, and I'll sell anywhere between fifteen, twenty, and other times. So. But he always wants me to come back, and I'll be back there next month, as a matter of fact. And the other store I used to go to, but they changed their policy. Albertson, big chain here in the western United States, they were bought out now by Safeway. What happened was I'd gone there a couple of times, and they liked it because I sold a lot of books. But what happened, they said, you know, 
if we let you in, we have to let in all these uh, people that uh, do uh, petitions, and we don't want them in if they got a lot of complaints because you're considered part of the public, you're considered part of local, and if we let you in, we have to let them in, and so we can't do it anymore. And that all their stores went that way, and they have big signs. There's no petitioners allowed here, but they don't. The only ones that allow it in Nash are the the Boy Scouts, and that's about and the Girl Scouts, and that's about it. That I I had done real well there too. So uh, right now it's just the Oak stores locally, and the other stores you have to have be a nonprofit thing. Right. So have you found that as you've increased the books in your series, have your sales picked up, or do you still sell about the same number of books at a signing? I, Even I yeah, still actually, still, yeah, I'll still sell about the same. It just I'll have a, I'll have a few people. <coughs> Sorry, I will have uh, maybe like yesterday. I had two people, two couples, bought the whole set. You know, they each bought four books, wow. and so they'll buy the, they'll buy the whole series. This is what I've I've seen more of, but it just seems it depends. Uh, when I was in Bozeman, Montana, it didn't make any difference. I had a lot of people buy books, a couple bought the sets, and some maybe bought one or two. And, uh, so it, it, it hasn't really changed that much, not to be, be all honest. But uh, people, what I have is returning customers. Is oh, I got the other one. I got to get the other one today, type of thing. Yeah, that's neat. Uh, and uh, yes, we certainly appreciate the effort that you make. Um, I'm always thinking, you know, where else in the country would these do well and would translations do well uh, over in Europe? Certainly Roman Britain or in, in Britain, we wouldn't need to, to translate, but yeah. make it available in the UK. So I do occasionally see your book sell uh, overseas, but it's maybe not to the degree that, that I would hope. Um, yeah. Well, I've had I've had some of my Facebook friends in Italy ask, when is it going to be translated into Italian? So I said I don't know if, when if it, if it ever will be. And then I've even had a couple of Russian people. In fact, one of the ladies, uh, a mis- big time mystery writer over there, she said, "When is your book going to be translated into uh, Russian?" <laughs> even right. So I said, "Yeah, I, I don't think so." <laughs> well, yeah, the, the way that typically works is a publisher from Europe would approach us, say an Italian publisher. Uh-huh. That they would they would pay for the right to translate it and pay for the right to publish it over uh, there. I see. And, uh, I see. We do and we do put our books out on a site called PubMatch, which is sort of like a um, it's just a posting for here. Here's a list of titles that we're looking for foreign rights opportunities, and uh-huh. you know, you're, yours are real fertile ground for that, obviously, given the subject matter. So, sure. Hopefully some. Hopefully someday. They'd also make awesome movies. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, it's I know. It's not a series, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I I thought about that, but I I was around uh, movie. Uh, I did a lot of security work. We had a lot of uh, movie companies come down into Long Beach, and I talked to all those people there. And plus, I talked to the people about how hard it is to get a book made into a movie, and all there were so many steps. I mean, you could die before you have your book made into a movie. So I, I just yeah. kind of kept that just out of my mind. I, I don't even think about it. It's just a hard road to yeah. go. It is. Uh, it's less than 1%. That's yeah. a very small number. And I know we've had a couple of our authors experience that, and that's wonderful. Yeah. But Yeah, it's great. I uh, wish it could happen for everybody, but it, obviously it, it doesn't. Yeah. But. Yeah, I would just... I'll be, you know, people say, when's your book a main movie? I said, I don't think I'll ever be made. I just had to tell them right off the bat. I said, I like it, but I got to be realistic about it. But I have had a lot yeah, of people well, ask me about that. It's a lot of luck, too. It's the right person picking it up. And it's certainly exactly. your novels are of a level of quality that there's, there's no reason why someone would uh, not want to do that once they had the idea and once they were exposed to it. Sure. But, Getting it out yep. to the right person, though. Which, uh, yeah, we we keep trying, and you know, as your series gets longer and more books to it, there's more opportunities, more people are reading it. Yeah, uh, hopefully these these uh, opportunities multiply. Yeah, well, I hope I can so, stay around long enough too, <laughs> as well. 
Well, you, you're out there eating your power bars and uh, doc yeah. uh, greeting all these people and on your feet and selling lots yeah. of books. I, I think that's a great way to stay in shape. Yeah. And, well, uh, I wanted to ask you. I work, I, I work out three days a week at a gymnasium. I have a personal trainer I work with, and that really helps. Plus, I have four acres here, like a mini farm. That keeps me busy, too, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. We have about 10 minutes to go, and I thought there's no way I can – finish this interview without asking you about your mini farm because you know we have some things in common tammy and i have a mini uh-huh. farm as well four uh-huh. acres and we uh-huh. have two horses so have. and i know you have horses so maybe you could tell right. us a little bit about your horses okay well we have uh three quarter horses uh they're really my wife's baby because she was born and raised in a, cat- a cattle ranch in north of santa barbara and that's how she worked worked with her school uh training horses and cleaning up after them anyway we have quarter horses one's a one's a rescue horse, which my wife we've always had rescue horses that she saved from going to a slaughterhouse in Mexico last November, and that horse is a twenty year old cattle horse, and boy he's spoiled rotten now, and he's healthy and happy and but yeah um yeah they're one's actually a registered Dunquarter horse, and the other two are are dark bays. And uh, they're all they're all trail horses. My wife used to be hunter jumper, but uh, don't do that anymore. But besides the horses, we've got apple trees, which of course Washington is famous for. And right. In fact, we we wind up every year. We only have 13 trees, but they have such a bumper crop that what our friends don't take, and we don't keep for and what we don't keep for our horses, we take to the the local food bank here. We've got the Second Harvest Food Bank, and it's been several years we've taken two tons of apples. For the food banks, so we definitely contribute to the local here. I also have an outdoor model railroad, which is my other passion, which I have 660 feet of track and 6,500 square feet, which I've had for years now. It's in the ground. Now, the horses don't mind that? <laughs> oh, the horses don't mind at all. Hell, they, they just like, huh? You know, they like, I, I have some pictures on, on Facebook I just put on, which I show the horses grazing in the, in the center paddock just beyond the trains and all. In fact, when a couple of times the horses have gotten out, they've stomped on the track. Well, the track is made out of multi-alloy brass. It just spikes into a V. I just simply cut out a section and replace another section. And uh, they're more interested in getting to the grass and the lawn than they are anything else when that happens. Yeah, yeah they're always interested in that grass, usually on the other side yeah. of the fence, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my wife That's is great. a genuine... Gen- She's a genuine horse whisperer. I mean, she's as a natural at it. Because she's had horses all her life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Tammy. Tammy is uh, similar. She's got two horses uh-huh. here. We also have some fruit trees, a couple uh-huh. of apple trees, pear, peaches, and you know, I love your oh, idea cool. of the food bank. I know yeah, this past great. year we we did some canning and we still uh-huh. haven't consumed it all. And I thought, we need to <laughs> yeah. get rid of this. You know, yeah, food so banks. Got, actually, you know, next, I didn't. I don't. Didn't even think of it. Yeah, we have several food banks. Uh, unfortunately, the Spokane area has its has its own number of poor people, and so the food banks are pretty busy here. Kind of a sad thing, but it's just the way it is. Yeah. We're digressing a little bit, but uh, I'll try to pull <laughs> you back into your your book series. <laughs> so uh, I think the Peacekeeper. We have that coming out. Hopefully in the next month. Okay. Uh, everybody can uh, actually look forward to that. Thank you. Yeah, proofing that kind of works out. Pardon? Uh, I believe you're, you're proofing you're it. Proofing it. You're right. Yeah, well, I finished proofing. I sent it back to uh, Janice Ram for her further work. Uh, that actually kind of works out because I already told people I want to do. I'm going to do kind of an unofficial book launch of the Barnes and Noble stores locally starting the beginning of August. Is where okay. I told them because uh, August, the first three weeks in August, I'm going to be doing uh, book signings at the two Spokane stores and in Kennewick down, uh, like I said, in the wine country. And I already told them, you know, I, I in fact I gave them printouts uh, of your page, Sunbury Press, of my book, so they could see the details and get the ISBN number and all that good stuff. And also did a, a, even a photo uh, printout, glossy photo of the book cover for him. And so they're all looking forward, and they'll, they're going to all order books for by for August. Excellent. 
Excellent. Let's hope that goes well. I know we'll have a little bit of time yeah. to try to get some publicity yeah. about it, and get some right. advanced readers as well. Yeah, it'd be great. So, Jess, it was uh, a real pleasure having you on. And uh, thank you. You know, hearing about hearing about horses and fruit trees, I may be hitting you up for uh, a visit one of these days when we're out out oh. of the way. Well, I hope be a so. Lot of fun. Yeah, would be. We uh, thank thank you for being on uh, for the show and look forward to your new book coming out and uh, hope to have you back on when that next one is ready to go. Hopefully not two years away, hopefully sooner than that. Well, I hope so. I'm kind of a slow writer, so we'll just have to see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jess. Take care. Oh, thank you. Bye. So that was Jess Stephen Hughes, author of the Britannia Romanus series. Sign of the Eagle, Wolf of Britannia 1 and 2, The Broken Lance, those are the first four books. The fifth book, The Peacekeeper, will be out uh, shortly. Sounds like we're having a launch party in August for that one. Thank you for joining us on the Sunbury Press Book Show here on the BookSpeak Network.